Hello everyone, my name is Fabiana Traini and I'm a PhD student in Bianchi's lab in Trinity College, Dublin, and I'm sponsored by Ulysses Neuroscience. I'll be hosting this podcast today with John to celebrate the 22nd of July, the National Fragile X Awareness Day in US. We'll be talking to Holly Rose from Fraxa, the US-based research foundation, and to her youngest child, A. John is now going to give us an overview of the conditions. Hi, John, and welcome. Thanks, Fabi. Uh, so yes, Fragile X syndrome and the related Fragile X associated tremor ataxia syndrome, or better known as FAXTAS, are two disorders ri- arising from a mutation in a gene known as FMR1. Fragile X syndrome uh, is more well-known, I'd say, than Faxas. Uh, it is a rare neurodevelopmental disorder that affects an individual from early on in life. Individuals with Fragile X syndrome can have a range of symptoms, including intellectual disability, developmental delay, anxiety, autism-like traits, and even seizures. On the other hand, Faxas occurs later in life and presents initially as a movement disorder, but can also incorporate uh, symptoms of neuropathy, that's loss of sensation and pain, and cognitive impairments. The gene responsible for both these disorders is called fMR1, and it's located on the X chromosome. So to remind you, this is one of the sex chromosomes that we all have. As such, um, women uh, tend to have a milder form of fragile X syndrome because they have a second copy of fMR1 uh, on their second X chromosome that can compensate for the mutation on the other chromosome. Uh, Men, on the other hand, have only one X chromosome because they also have a Y chromosome, which doesn't carry as much genetic information. So generally, or always, uh, they only have the mutated form, which means that the effect in in men is much greater. Fragile X syndrome and Faxtas are related in that the same mutation, in a way, causes both conditions. So if we look at the fMR1 gene, At the very beginning in the genetic sequence, there's what we call a repeated motif. So this is where there's a repetition of the base pairs that make up the gene sequence. So it goes CGG, 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 CGG. So this CGG, uh, which is kind of the unit that gets repeated, uh, can be repeated up to 50 times without affecting the the potency or the effect of the gene. However, in FAXTAS, this CGG repeat occurs between 55 and 200 times. So it starts repeating much more CGG, 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 and on and on, uh, which then affects the expression of the gene because you suddenly have this kind of lead up to the gene, which normally isn't there. Those who have this form of the fm one gene aren't necessarily guaranteed to have FAXTAS. They're at greater risk of it, but they're called carriers. And they're also at greater risk, not only of developing FAXTAS, but also of having children who have fragile X syndrome. So fragile X syndrome itself is caused when the CGG repeat, which can be between 55 and 200 times in carriers, can occur over 200 times, uh, which severely impacts the expression of the fMR1 gene. And this form of CGG is generally referred to as a full mutation. Thank you. Thanks a million, John, for this. And today we're going to have the opportunity to hear from Holly and A about their experiences in dealing with these conditions. And so, hi, Holly, and welcome. Hi, thank you for having us today. Hi. Uh, Would you like to tell us a little bit more about, for example, how did Fragile X come into your life? Sure. So um, I am one of three daughters. I'm I'm the middle daughter. Uh, My oldest sister had a son who was showing some some delays, um, especially like with his large motor skills. Um, Then my son was born and his large motor skills are great. You know, he sat up early. He walked early. He did all of those boy things really early, but he didn't talk and his fine motor skills were not developing at all. Um, My older sister was pregnant with her second. I was pregnant with my second and I was taking my son to multiple doctors and early intervention people. And I'm like, something's, something's not right. So my background is early childhood education. So I knew what the milestones were. I knew what he wasn't hitting. I knew something just wasn't quite right. He never slept as a baby, (laughs) never slept. Um, So we just kept going to doctor after doctor after doctor. And 
they told me repeatedly, you're, you're just a neurotic first time mom and you feel bad because your nephew is showing some delays. Mm. And so my mom, who was also a nurse, um, was attending a genetics conference in Chicago and there was a booth talking about Fragile X and she happened to stop and talk to, pick up the information. And she was like, wow, you know, check in the boxes. Well, this one is her oldest grandson and this one is her younger grandson. And so she gave me a call and we made the appointment to have Parker tested. And so it was really just a fluke, um, pure luck that my mom came across this booth at a genetics conference while she was there for work. And from there we had Parker tested and sure enough, he came back with a full mutation. Um, a was just a few months old at the time. And we saw a genetic counselor who <laughs> said all the worst case scenario things that, you know, my son would never go to school and he would never talk and he would never live independently and we should look for um, a facility for him. And it was just the worst of the worst. And she said, and absolutely do not test your daughter because, um, you know, there's, there's absolutely no need. And so we ended up getting in touch with Dr. Rondi Hagerman um, at UC Davis Mind Institute. And she was like, absolutely, you know, test the younger child and be sure you know, just what's going on there. So we had A tested um, when they were about six months old and sure enough, A came back as a full mutation as well. So from there, I just started digging in and um, testing everybody um, that would be tested. Um, my, my older sister, her oldest does have the full mutation as well. Um, her younger son does not have it. Um, my dad's a carrier. Um, his mom and her dad and then his mom. So we ended up going back about six generations in our family, just reaching out to anybody and everybody that I could find distance wise with cousins and relatives to say, hey, you know, you need to get tested and you need to figure out what this is. And then I just, my way of coping was digging in and learning all I could and then getting the word out because nobody, nobody had a clue what it was around here. And so I just made it my job to educate everybody. That sounds really challenging, and especially I'm I'm kind of shocked at the uh, attitude of the genetic counselor. Was this? Did you feel reflective of this individual, or was it a more general kind of the medical understanding at the time was at this level? Yeah. So Parker's 22 now, and I feel like it was more. I mean, she was an older lady, and I feel like she just kind of looked in a book and maybe hadn't had any refresher on it and it was just the information that was out there like there wasn't a lot of positive information out there at the time and so I feel like that she took the most common things she saw and just put them out there for us and yeah we we uh, wrote her a nice letter afterwards <laughs> after we learned more information about a year later and was like hey you know when these families come in you have to you have to give them some hope and you know I had scooped up Parker at the time and left the meeting and said you know, that's fine. He'll live with his mom forever and we'll be fine. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it was just kind of, there just wasn't the information out there that there is today. Mm. No, there certainly isn't. And I, I imagine though, it's still a struggle to get that information out to people because a lot of it is from kind of maybe preclinical research that we have lots of information, but how do we apply that to a family coming in looking for a diagnosis or just received a diagnosis and the practicalities for their life? Like um, it, it, it's a it's a big challenge. So you you mentioned, sorry, you mentioned that your background is education. So how well set up is the education system in your area, um, for uh, individuals with with different needs? Well, they're a lot better now. <laughs> um, it was it was a challenge. Mm. It was a challenge with Parker when he was younger. Um, you know, the the school really fought against having him in a general education classroom. And it was, it was a lot every, you know, every quarter, almost every day for a while of just going in and meeting and educating, you know, educating the teachers and the um, paraprofessionals and the staff who were there to help him and really fighting for what his rights were. Um, we have schools in our, in our town. And so each area of where you live has a home grade school and our home grade school didn't have the special education programs that he needed and so they wanted us to go to a different one well all the neighborhood kids went to this one and that's where the people he knew were and so we fought really hard to get him there and then for them to bring 
the programs from the other school that specialized like in autism to bring those to that school. And so we helped um, some educate teachers and I went in every year and I talked to the students, to his classmates and explained his disability, explained you know, why he has some of the characteristics that he has, some of the behaviors that he has and how they can be his friend and how they can help him. Um, and so there's parents now um, of kids who you know, may not have fragile X, but may have another disability who will you know, see me at the grocery store or something and be like, thank you. Thank you for you know, creating that path so that we have that now. Um, in the schools. It, it got easier as he got older, um, especially come high school. Uh, high school was my biggest fear and it was probably some of the best years of his life. Um, we had amazing teachers from early childhood, you know, kindergarten, all through elementary and middle school and high school. All of our teaching staff was amazing. Um, they were all learning, but there just wasn't the educational background there. And so we're, we were fortunate that they were open to learning about Parker and learning about Fragile X and how they can best help him. Wow, that sounds really interesting to know how the path uh, changed throughout the years. And I was wondering, Holly, how old was Parker when you get the diagnosis and how does it, how long does it take realistically to get a diagnosis for families out there listening to us? So Parker was almost four before he was diagnosed. He was diagnosed just a couple months before his fourth birthday, which is pretty common still. It still seems to be that three to four year old range is when um, families are getting that diagnosis, which is, you know, another reason, you know, everything to me comes down to awareness, you know, what makes it easier, you know, for families and that, that's awareness. The more awareness we can have out there, you know, the more professionals we can reach, the more families we can reach who can, you know, look at their kids and be like, oh, you know, okay, I, I see, you know, X, Y, and Z, maybe we should get mm -hmm. tested for this. Um, and it is, it's a blood test and it doesn't take long. The turnaround time um, isn't very long to get it back and it's, you know, extremely accurate. So the nice thing for me about Fragile X, one of the things I, I like about it was it was a very black and white answer. There was no checklist to see, well, we think he might have this. It was, nope, <laughs> this is what's in his DNA. This is what it is. It's questioning it. Um, so it made it a little bit easier for me to accept and to go forward from. Um, yeah, that average age of diagnosis hasn't decreased any. And that's one of the things we would love to see is an earlier diagnosis in children. And is the age of diagnosis based on the fact that it's parents noticing something is different and going to their doctor? Or is it that it's just very hard to see the differences until that age? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, a lot of kids around that three-year-old range is when you really start to notice that they're not catching up the way that you would have anticipated. Um, for some of our more affect kids, it's, it's more obvious early on. And then it's just a matter of finding a professional who you know, is aware of Fragile X and willing to test them for that. Um, obviously if there's a family history, we get the diagnosis earlier, but I think a lot of it just boils down to, you know, by age three, when you would have thought that they would have caught up to things, um, they're just not like one of the developmental pediatricians that we saw for Parker, he told me, he said, you know, he's just a boy and boys develop more slowly than girls. And he said, you know, he was the one that told me I was neurotic and he said, you know, when Parker's five and he goes into kindergarten, you're going to look back on laugh because you were so over-concerned for no reason. And um, yeah, he also got a letter many years later and I said, I'm not laughing, you know, it, it didn't change, but you know, he had thought the same, you know, he'll catch up, you know, he's, you know, his large motor skills are there, his fine motor skills will come, the speech will come and it just, it didn't. So I think around that three to four year old range is when you realize they're not catching up the way you anticipated. And do you think then that that's, part of the long-term problem then with trying to keep these children in in mainstream schools that they're probably missing out on speech and language therapies and occupational therapies and th things like uh, physical therapies and things like that early on in life not just in fragile x obviously but across a range of disorders um, because it's a crucial time in a child's life no matter what their development trajectory is 
Yeah, the earlier you can get, you know, um, in the United States, it's early intervention. And that is, it's the speech therapy, the occupational therapy, the physical therapy. The earlier you can start that, the, the better it is for the child for any disability. And so, yeah, that's why an earlier diagnosis is, makes such a difference. And yeah, helps a lot. We are very accepting of some tests early on in life, but I think, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why there's such a great fear of running a, a panel of common rare common rare disorders um or maybe there's just too many of them to whittle down that people will, like i mean will justifiably feel left out if it's like well fragile x got to look in but not x and y and like i mean because like i mean it is important we need to catch as many of them as we can and um, do you think there's any appetite for earlier genetic testing just as a routine um hail rain or shine like yeah, I mean, it's something that a lot of parent organizations have pushed for um, because we wouldn't need them to draw any additional blood in the beginning if with that heel prick. It, it just takes that tiny drop. And so we wouldn't, you know, need more blood and we can, um, you know, get the cost of the test down significantly to include it in the panel. And it's just, it's hard to get hospitals to bite onto it because it's mm. rare. And that's the challenge that we have come across that because it's a rare disease that there's not enough diagnosed that it's not Mm -hmm. worth putting it in there but yet it absolutely is if you're one of the ones who who has that rare disease Mm -hmm. and so i'm sure other rare diseases feel the same way um like i said i know for us it wouldn't take any additional blood than what they're already taking and so we would love to see it i mean it would it would just make such a world of difference for Mm -hmm. our kids i imagine so and and there's that point as well that we call them rare diseases but there's a lot of rare diseases so they're common um, so exactly. and like i mean on any given day there's going to be somebody getting a diagnosis or bad news or um or or some kind of like i mean it just happens all the time and like i mean maternity hospitals have a high throughput and um, humans are good at making more humans so um but <laughs> yeah so I'll let Fabi take over now for a little bit. Yeah, no, it was so interesting to hear from you, Holly. And I was just wondering, uh, speaking about all the challenges you must have faced, what did you and do you experience as a carrier? I mean, how how did you and how do you manage uh, to deal with your own symptoms for the sake of your kids, for example? Yeah, and that's a great question because as carriers of the premutation of the gene, um, we do have a lot of carrier issues. Um, I have a lot of anxiety. I have really significant depression. Um, As I've gotten older, I've developed sensory issues, which um, I had slightly when I was younger, but not to the effect that I have now. Um, And I think early on, you know, I was young and I just didn't, well, I was like, 25, 27. Um, I was young compared to now. (laughs) I just didn't think much about them. Um, But as I've gotten older, and then you have, you know, the caregiver, you know, all the responsibilities that come with the weight of that. um, And you learn that you absolutely have to manage it. Um, I, my anxiety got to the point where I was having panic attacks on a regular basis. And so, um, you know, I really had to look at, you know, what was out there to help me, you know, what medications were out there, because if I can't help myself, then I'm not going to be a good mom and a good caregiver for my kids. And so, you know, really for carriers to acknowledge the issues that they're having and deal with them and face them full on and be sure that they're getting the help that they need, it's so crucial because it's a lot. It's very demanding to take care of a child with fragile X syndrome. Um, It's a spectrum disorder. So there's kids that are way easier to take care of and there's ones that are you know, way more challenging than what I have with Parker, but Parker falls on the moderate side and he has, you know, he has aggression and he has um, a lot of anxiety and he has sleep disturbances. So he doesn't sleep much. Um, you know, there's the cognitive delay, there's the speech issues. And so he has a whole lot going on for him. And that, that takes a lot of time and attention um, and energy. And so, you know, for me, one of the things I really talk to with moms who are newly diagnosed is really being sure they're taking care of themselves and, you know, not to feel bad. If you need to take medication or, 
you know, something, or if you do yoga, whatever it is that you do, you need to address those issues that are going on with yourself so that you can be a better caregiver for your child. And yeah, I know that for a long time, carriers of the premutation have been considered completely unaffected. And now mm -hmm. we, we know for sure that it's, it's not the case. And how did you find uh, the medical community, how knowledgeable is about helping carriers to deal with their own uh, issues? Did you feel like it changed or not? I feel like it's it's come a long way. I think, I feel like everything's come a long way. Um, that Fragile X isn't always something now where people are like, what? I mean, I still get that about 75% of the time, but in the medical community, I feel like it's, it's really improved greatly. Um, you know, my, my own doctor, I'm not sure if he understands that he's treating carrier symptoms or if he's just solely looking at treating, you know, anxiety and depression. Um, but I know the specialist, you know, when I talked to Dr. Elizabeth Barry Kravis up in Chicago, you know, she understands the carrier symptoms. And I mean, she's one of the best in the world for Fragile X. Um, so she understands all of it. But um, her and Dr. Deborah Hall there, you know, they really focus on, you know, a lot with what's going on with the carriers and, you know, fax tasks and what could be coming down the road and keeping an eye on that. Um, so I really turn to them a lot. Um, I feel like, you know, locally, my doctors, he's great at treating, you know, symptoms, but I'm not sure he understands the whole global picture of it. Um, and a lot of that's on me because I haven't taken the time to explain it all to him, but I live in a smaller rural community as well. And so I feel like that my friends who are like maybe in Boston or San Francisco, that their, <clears throat> their doctors are a little bit more up to date on what they carry symptoms are. And, you know, we really encourage the the families out there to educate the doctors so that, you know, they're understanding, you know, the bigger whole picture. Nice to meet you. Hi, hey. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit more about your experience? For example, how was it to learn about your diagnosis? Um, I just kind of grew up with it. So for me, it's just in my mind, just everyday life with it. So it just like, I'm still, I guess, kind of learning stuff about it. But I can semi, I guess, explain it to people if I need to. Yeah. yeah, so A's whole life, there was, there was never a time where we sat down with A and said, hey, you have fragile X syndrome, because I did so much awareness and education that it was just part of their life growing up. So there was never really a time where we sat down and we're like, oh, hey, by the way, um, you have this. And how understanding are your friends and the people in school and, and things like that about it? How, how do you find living with it? We've heard, we've heard your mother's experience in trying to get the schools to pay attention, but have you found that they've paid attention? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> uh, I would say there's like, like my brother's class was like amazing. They did a lot with him. And then you kind of my class who were like, okay with it. Like they've, they've heard about mm. it. And so they kind of know what it is, but they didn't, I guess, like take it to the next level like my brother's class did. And how did that make you feel? That must have been challenging having seen how your brother um, how, how your brother had a different experience or do you feel you were more able for it maybe? Uh, I just kind of, I guess in a way, uh, blending just kind of in and just staying with my friend group and I didn't really care like how what others really did. And do you feel there are things that people misunderstand about you? Uh, yeah, um, my whole thing is like a lot of people, if you tell them, they're like, they automatically treat you like you're a lot younger. So I've had people that treat me like I'm two, even though I couldn't. Hmm. And I was obviously way older at that time. So yeah. that's kind of annoying. And they view it as like, you're not necessarily like a human like they are if that makes sense like you're something completely different in their world but in reality you're not <laughs> no like I mean I I, th I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that when we hear a lot about fragile x and other disorders 
with our the lay community who aren't who aren't familiar with it i think they only see the worst case scenario and they don't see that people some people actually cope quite well with it and aren't like as affected as other people and um, so do you where are you at in your schooling at the moment are you in uh, I, I actually don't know how the american system works i presume it's high school uh i'm in i'm about to go into my first year of college wow amazing and what are, what are you going to study i'm going into political science yeah wow that's fantastic and and what what do you think about your experience in high school in general and how do you think it would be different maybe in college or maybe not? Uh, I made jokes throughout high school that my grade was like, I guess like cursed as a joke because we had something happen like every single year. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, our scene like our end of our junior year we didn't really get and then like pretty much like our entire senior year we didn't get because of COVID because of COVID so like our high like my high school experience like I guess like Parker did more in his high school experience than I really got to do yeah so your high school experience was your own house really wasn't yeah <laughs> yeah um so well hopefully then your college experience is actually going outside of the house to to an actual college um because we've had that here as well, that everything has closed down. And I feel really sorry for people who have missed out on, on the early college experience, which is great fun, as well as obviously important in terms of learning. Talking about rare diseases. So A was diagnosed with um, juvenile dermatomyositis a couple of years ago. Um, and that's a rare life-threatening autoimmune disease. So that's definitely oh. what's impacted A the most. Um, but yeah. A didn't have any modifications in high school um, related to their fragile X outside of um, like preferential seating because they have some vision issues because no, they can't see because of their eyes because they can't <laughs> see. Um, a was born with esotropia strabismus because of having fragile X and later developed nystagmus. And so their vision's not the best, although they can drive. Um, so they have some preferential seating, but they graduated. Um, you know, higher up in their class with honors um, without any modifications. And so um, while A has a lot of anxiety, uh, they also run speech team and did speeches about Fragile X along with um, JDM and- I did speech team while for high school. I started a club in high school. You guys talk a little louder. Uh, club, I ran a club. <laughs> you did speech team. I did speech for four years. Um, and A was real active in the Club Unify program, which helps pair, um, you know, the get more people involved with kids who have special needs and other disabilities. Yeah, that's great. I, I don't think we have any programs or very few programs like that here. So it, it's, it's really important to hear of these to to share how we can learn in other countries or in other areas. Uh, I wanted to ask you a if there's any advice you would give to um, other people to enjoy their experience in high school, for example, or uh, with friends in general, to make the most of it. Um, if you want to do something, do it because you don't know if you're going to have that chance again. Because like we've definitely wanted to do stuff and then COVID's happened. So we couldn't have that experience in high school. So if you're able to have that experience in high school, just do it. <laughs> you don't know if it like how easily it could get taken away. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, how was it to grow up with a brother who also has uh, fragile X? How did you feel and how did you experience your childhood, for example, with him? Um, again, to me, it was completely normal. So it was just everyday life. Uh, we did kind of have to like, we did leave things early sometimes because he was getting like too overwhelmed. But that doesn't mean like sometimes we did find shortcuts where I could stay longer. Uh, I could still pretty much go out and do stuff with my friends. And they could still come over, but they all also understood Parker, but didn't really care. 
Did you have to explain Parker to your friends before they came over? Uh, I just said, don't talk to him like he's a child. And they all listened. That's all I said. I was like, hey. So if when there were times like there was the time we were at the fair and Parker had a meltdown and oh yeah I always tell them to just like sometimes they'll freak out but now if he did they would just stay out of the way and just kind of let Mm. him calm down and do what he needed to do and how would you feel like if we were at the store or the fair or anywhere in public the movie theaters and Parker would have a pretty massive meltdown how did it make you feel uh, I guess, like, if he went a real long time without having one, it was just like, oh. <laughs> but normally, I just kind of sit out of the way and let other people handle it. And then if I needed to help him with something, I would. So if I needed to step in and help him, then I would. But I would just let, like, my mom or my dad or somebody handle it. Were you all frustrated by that happening? Or embarrassed? <laughs> not really not really okay I was just I was just mostly just watching for other people to say something so I could be like keep walking go yeah you're you're you were you were ready to defend rather than yeah intervene yeah I was one that was just watching in case anybody said something it's like like actually no we all need somebody (laughs) like that in our lives definitely (laughs) yes we can uh, talk about a little bit about the um, National Fragile X Awareness Day. So uh, maybe if A want to uh, share their experience about it, how maybe this day impacts them. I think every day at our house is kind of Fragile X Awareness Day when you live with um, somebody who's impacted as much as Parker. Yeah, that. So I don't know that it stands out that much differently to A than. Mm-hmm any other yeah it's not it's not as if you're suddenly talking about fragile x where you weren't before um so yeah but but how so personally to you obviously not a huge thing but do you think it's made much of an impact on the wider society yeah i think else people understand and then hopefully if they take the time to look into one disability they'll look into all of them so then they just understand it better and then slowly learn more about it and I hope spread more about it because sometimes you find that person that loves to learn about things and then they talk about that thing and then it just mm. spreads excellent well, thank yes, you so much thanks Jay. a million uh, really thank you so much but we know we know we dragged you out of bed for this so <laughs> my sincere apologies for that. <laughs> thank you I promise we won't call it <laughs> You're safe now. Uh, I, I did look at the time zones a lot. I'm like, okay, so, you know, 4 p.m. here. What time is it there? <laughs> uh, yeah, we miscalculated. That's, that's all good. That's your soon-to-be college student for you. <laughs> Thank you. I was just wondering, Holly, um, how do you think the pandemic affected families in general? and how it affected your family yeah the pandemic was incredibly hard on our families um my family maybe just a little bit more because of a second rare disease um so we we didn't leave the house period we lived in a bubble to protect a um definitely to protect parker because um you know when he gets sick we don't know until he's super super sick and um we knew how hard this would be on him as well um so we didn't we didn't leave the house we didn't see anybody for several months we just had everything delivered um but everything for the fragile x community in general we are so routine based um our kids thrive on routine so when school was suddenly out of the picture therapies were stopped you know, just the routine of seeing friends and seeing teachers when all of that stopped suddenly, that really was a challenge for our families. Um, 
And then the other thing is not knowing how long it was going to last because in Fragile X, if, I mean, if you want success, you say, okay, you know, here's the beginning and here's when it's going to end. And we could not answer that. I mean, we still can't answer that question exactly. You know, I mean, the U.S. is doing really well right now, but we, you know, we can't say that we wouldn't end up in another lockdown or something. And so it's hard to say, you know, when life is fully back to normal and then, um, when we were able to start going out more, it was it was wearing the masks. And so when you have children who have sensory issues, you know, teaching them to wear a mask and to keep a mask on and to work through those sensory issues with that, it was just like one challenge after another after another, um, which I know all families had. But when you have a when you have a child with a disability who is routine based and their whole routine is gone in an instant, that mm -hmm. is that that was the biggest challenge I think we have ever faced and we've we've faced a lot of challenges in our time but that um you know was just something we had absolutely no control over and it just was really hard um you know mentally and emotionally on our families and you know then fighting to be able to get those therapies back um you know even if it wasn't school how could we get the therapies back that they needed you know whether it be in a home or through zoom or in person um so that our kids are not losing skills that they had developed and did you find that the the therapists and the the medical staff you're working with did, did they try and, and meet you halfway with this type of things or absolutely yeah um they they knew the importance of it um that's one of the great things about the medical community with the you know the doctors and the therapists um you know they they're really in your, in your kid and they know, you know, how far you've come. And the last thing they want to do is see regression. And so they were incredible with trying to find solutions and, you know, ways to make it work mm -hmm. so that, you know, our kids didn't regress. And they were still also trying to get some routine back into their lives, you know, even if they couldn't see them in person. So they were really phenomenal. Um, our, you know, our teachers were the same way, you know, with trying to, trying to get Parker to do school through Zoom was it just didn't happen from March until the end of the school year when we first shut down it didn't happen I mean it was just he doesn't like being on camera and he didn't understand and it was just it hit a point where it just wasn't worth it wasn't worth the meltdowns that it was causing and um, his teachers tried everything and but come fall um, you know we had we'd really worked on it we talked about it a lot um, his teachers had sent little videos and things to him so that, you know, he knew they were in their homes too. And um, so then his, his last school year, because he aged out in May, um, right before A graduated. Um, so from August until January, when did you guys go back? Like fourth, fourth quarter. We so March. Fourth quarter. So it was like March. So from August until March. March. Okay, so from August until the middle of March, we did remote learning, and um, he really excelled at it by that time. And so anything that he had, you know, he was great, you know, he, he would start the computer, he would do his meetings, he would do his work. Um, it was kind of neat to see as a parent, um, because I got to see, you know, what he was really working on and just how successful he was with it and where his challenges really were academically. Um, you know, his teachers they can tell you that in a meeting, but when you see it every day, um, it's it's very eye-opening and very different. And we were so fortunate because like I, said, I, every teacher out there who has taught through COVID remotely deserves, you know, like a million dollar bonus because they've been incredible. Um, but the last, the last quarter for us for school, mid-March through May, they went back in person and, it was nice for my kids to be able to have that last bit of school, you know, with their peers and, and their teachers in person. And did Parker find it hard to go back? Had, had the routine changed long enough for it to be no longer the routine anymore? Or was he happy to, he was, he was happy to go back? To go back. He jumped right back into the routine. The hardest part for Parker was that he had a job that he worked at um, off school grounds that he wasn't able to do because um, they weren't 
they weren't doing that program. They weren't taking the kids off the school campus. Um, so the hardest part for him was not going back to work and being able to see the people that he had worked with for the last couple of years. But as far as getting back into the routine of school, he was so ready and just jumped right in and was awesome with it. Yeah, they did. They did temperature checks at the door and he did. He took him to school every day and said, so they did great with it. So we were, One. we did our best to prep him and he just flew right through. That's your job as a parent. Yeah. Wind them up and let them go. Uh, yeah. Do our best to get them ready. And what would you say, Holly, to families or adults seeking support uh, in these difficult times? Uh, is there an advice you would give them? Find it. It's out there. Um, you know, and it doesn't always have to cost money. There's a lot of groups on social media that are just for parents with, you know, children with disabilities. There's groups specialized just for fragile X. Um, you know, reach, reach out to the organizations that are out there. We have families that reach out to us mm -hmm. at Fraxa all the time and say, hey, you know, here's, here's what I'm going through and, you know, what can I do or what's going on and wherever, you know, you can find it, you know, definitely seek out that help, you know, look for those, you know, look for those friendships, find those parents who, you know, are living in similar shoes and that you really, you know, hit it off well with and, you know, build those friendships and be sure that you have those people to support you because it can be very isolating being a special needs parent. Um, you know, we don't get to do things the way everybody else does. And so it is, it is isolating, you know, when Parker was younger, um, and even now, but when he was younger, you know, and I would see his friends, you know, playing baseball or, mm -hmm. you know, going to the pool together, or, you know, when they started driving and, you know, there's all these things that happened that he just couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. And you see what the other families are doing and how they're involved. And there's just things that you, you can't always do because it's too much for your kid. And so it's, it can be isolating and it's important that you reach out um, and find where your, where your people are and that they celebrate, you know, all of those things with you. I would do a talk. My best friend lives in Massachusetts and she has two boys with Fragile X. And we actually met online in a Fragile X group and just hit it off. And now we're um, inseparable. But we would do a talk frequently for families about, you know, focusing on the good and how families around you, you know, they'll celebrate the milestones in life. And our kids don't always reach those milestones or they reach them, but it takes years. And so we talked about celebrating inch stones. So, you know, maybe, maybe your kid, you know, rode a bike when they were four and that's a great milestone. Well, you know, my kid maybe went to the bathroom on the toilet, you know, by themselves when, you know, when they were four or five or six and that, that was an inch stone for us. It wasn't a milestone we'd, we'd met yet, but it was an inch stone and we celebrated those. We celebrate every inch stone that's out there and we really look for that good. And it's important in the world of disability when there are so many negative things and so many challenges that you look for the good mm. and you celebrate it and that you understand mm. that those stones are just as important as those milestones mm. and they're definitely worth celebrating and you know really being proud of that's a really wonderful perspective and um, thanks for sharing I, I i even love that term in stones that that it's really nice and and you're dead right like it's mm. like we need to like that's the whole thing we just need to encourage and celebrate the whole way along yeah and just make sure everybody just gets the recognition they deserve yeah on a different note because obviously fraxa is very research focused mm -hmm. how do you feel research impacts on your day-to-day -day life um sure so in general a, re a really wide question for you there <laughs> sure so um I, I am such a firm believer in research. Um, you know, if, if we don't have the research and we don't participate in the research, then we're never going to have effective treatments or a cure. Um, Parker was part of a research project 
I can't even remember when it was now, several years ago, the STX 209, the Arbaclofen. And it was, well, it would have been 12 years ago because he was 10. And um, it was a double blind placebo. And we had done several small research projects, a lot of language projects, but this was our first medication drug trial. And um, so the, the whole first half, you know, we didn't know if we had the placebo or the real thing. And I was like, well, it's probably the real thing and it's just not gonna help them. Well, then, you know, the second half of it, um, I hadn't seen a lot of change and you, you kind of, kind of trick yourself into thinking you're seeing change when you're on a trial like that. So it's, it's, it's an interesting spot to be in, but he had very, very limited vocabulary. Um, there was no conversations, there was no getting answers. And he had broken a glass in the kitchen, just complete accident. It knocked off the counter and he, I, I said, stop, just, you know, don't move. And he looked up at me and he said, I'm sorry, mom, I love you. And I just burst out crying. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he was 10 years old. He had never said a full sentence. He had never said, I love you. I'm like, okay, we're on the real thing. <laughs> this is the real thing. And it was life-changing for us that we were able to go to the pool and we were able to go to the movie theaters and we didn't have the meltdowns. And it was amazing. And then they lost their funding and it was taken away from us. And it was the hardest thing I think I've ever went through um, mm. mentally and emotionally um, because I was so scared of what he would lose. And we were very fortunate that he, he didn't regress significantly. I mean, we still have the language there. We talk about sports every day. He's a huge Chicago Cubs fan. You know, he can tell you all the players. Um, so we didn't lose a lot, but it took a lot for me mentally to get back into research. And it all boiled down to me to, if I want that difference for him and I want there to be effective treatment so he can live a fuller life, then we have to participate and we have to take those chances. Um, my dad is the carrier in our family. And from day one, he has traveled to California to see Dr. Hagerman. He goes to Rush all the time. He's been to Emory. He's He's been everywhere and he'll, he'll always say, whatever it takes, you know, if, if it helps one child, I'll do it. And he has participated in more research trials than anybody else that I know. And so I always encourage families, you know, whether it's a survey or it's, you know, it's a language, you know, one, if you're, if you're concerned about the medication ones, then, you know, there's so many other research projects and every single one of them are important. And the only way we're going to reach that final destination is to get involved and to participate in that research and to support that research. Because of course, research costs money. So we have to have the funding behind it, which is one of the things I love about Fraxes. There's, you know, that's their focus is funding that research for a cure. And it's amazing to be a part of it because that research is what's going to change the lives of our families. And so it's, it's definitely one of my highest priorities. Thanks so much for this, Holly. That's truly inspiring. Is there anything that is missing from research in Fragile X? Um, the cure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's still missing. Um, I, you know, I, I'm so amazed with what's happening in research right now. Um, I am absolutely blown away at how many different angles are being looked at to, you know, get the, get the protein back in or to reactivate the gene. And there's just so much happening. And I love that it's coming from so many different angles so that, you know, there's more than one approach happening. And I'm absolutely fascinated with the researchers that are out there and the work that they're doing. Um, you know, outside of there being that cure yet, I, I don't know what's missing. Um, I know that we, I know that we need the funding for them to be successful. And I feel like that we have so many dedicated professionals out there right now, the researchers that are absolutely dedicated to making this happen that, you know, we're seeing great things happen and that's only gonna continue to get better. And so I'm excited to see where, where their research takes them and where it takes our families because it's, it's gonna be good. Absolutely. Um, then I was just kind of wondering that in terms of people finding out more about the, what work Fraxa does, the kind of research it funds, where can we point our listeners to who might not be aware of it? Um, I mean, I know, but... 
yeah, I mean, if you go to FRAXA Research Foundation's website, it's just FRAXA.org, F-R-A-X-A.org. Um, you know, it talks, they've, they've funded over $31 million in biomedical research, and there's so much information about the research projects that they funded and, you know, how you can help, you know, be a part of that funding to make a difference for our families. And is there information for families to get involved in research? Absolutely. Um, yeah, again, if you go to FRAXA, um, there's, there's places to get involved um, in the research projects. And of course, if you just want to email us, if you don't want to take the time to, you know, look at the get involved section on the website, if you just drop us an email, we can let you know, you know, where you can sign up for a registry to get involved. Um, and there's, there's all sorts of research out there. There's research for the carriers because, you know, as you said earlier, the, the side effects of being a carrier are, are just really starting to be recognized. And so there's a lot of carrier research going on. There's a lot of fax test research going on. Um, and of course, our focus is Fragile X. And, you know, there's so many Fragile X research projects going on right now that need, you know, participants. And we definitely help you get involved in that. Um, is there anything, are, are there any particular events, online events of note for Fraxa for Fragile X, for the National Fragile X Day? Yeah, so uh, Fragile X Day is July 22nd, and um, we are recognizing it in a variety of ways. Um, we um, are participating in World Fragile X Day. Fraxa is kind of leading the way on that. And, you know, for, for those countries that celebrate on July 22nd, um, you know, they're, they're lighting up. Um, landmarks all over the place. Um, I know that our friends in Ireland celebrate on October 10th, and so we're excited to cheer them on when their day comes. Um, but for the countries that celebrate on July 22nd, we're working at really bringing them together and, you know, getting the word out. Um, awareness is key to everything. And so the more people who are aware, you know, the more people that we can help understand what it's like to live with Fragile X and, um, you know, and then hopefully we can help get some funding for that research as well. So we have, you know, picnics and fundraisers and illuminations everywhere. We have many cities that are doing proclamations to, you know, recognize July 22nd as Fragile X Awareness Day. And so we have a whole map at worldfragilexday.com that talks about what's going on in different places um, around the world and how you can be involved in that. Thank you. Thank you, Aldi. Thank you for this. Thank you, A. And thanks for sharing your experience. It was truly moving and interesting and inspiring. Uh, thanks a million, John, for co-hosting with me. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to us. And please give our best to Parker. Yes. Thank you for having us. Who I feel is here in spirit. I will. If not, uh, if not. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much for having us.